welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. I am a photographer who has lived most of my life in Austin. I've had an office at Canopy, probably the largest artist studio complex in town, since it opened over five years ago. So I'm surrounded by artists and do make an effort to also get out to openings at galleries when I can, along with other art events. And after years of listening to podcasts, I decided to start one myself, and it just made sense to start with what I know and who I know. And all I can say is that it has been great, and I am so grateful to be able to do it, and I'm thankful to everyone who has been a guest. I'm really looking forward to the coming year and all of the people I will meet and interview and get to spend time with. This interview is with Art Science Gallery founder and director, Dr. Haley Gillespie. I learned so much in this episode. Maybe I've been living under a rock, but I had not really considered or realized how connected art and science are. And Haley shares a small handful of stories about some of her favorite scientists slash artists, and I felt so inspired hearing about their accomplishments and how art was intertwined with their passion for science. I'd be very interested to hear if you feel the same way. We also touch on some tough issues around how artists and galleries are being supported in Austin. So here is Haley. All right, Haley, welcome to my podcast. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Oh, thanks. So I guess you could say we're neighbors here at Canopy at uh, 916 Springdale Road yes, in Austin. Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are the owner of the Art and Science Gallery. Yes. So tell me about that. Um, Well, I started Art Science Gallery about five years ago. Yeah. um, Because I was really into the intersection of art and science. And I was starting to meet a lot of really cool artists doing work, Mm -hmm. artwork inspired by a lot of the different natural sciences. Yeah. And I'm also really into science communication, so I thought one way to um, rope people into science who might not otherwise be into it would be to show them art about it, Yeah. to maybe start a conversation with those folks. A way to communicate science facts or concepts in a more visual, conceptual way. Right, yeah. Very cool. Mm Mm-hmm. And how has it been five years of running a gallery? I mean, that's a pretty good run already. It's a pretty good run. Yeah. No, it's been wonderful. And um, I've been here at Canopy almost that whole time. Yeah. Um, I was a pop-up gallery and did shows in my house and at First Presbyterian Church and at Shriner University in Kerrville before landing here at Canopy, um, thanks to our great neighbors at Big Medium. Yeah for helping me find a home here. But yeah, it's been been really wonderful. Yeah, and this is a good spot. It gets a lot of traffic, yeah. and especially during the East Austin Studio Tour. It does. So I'm just wondering then, how did we get to the point where you own this gallery? Like, where did this all start? <laughs> um, well, I never planned to own an art gallery, <laughs> ever. <laughs> Not when you were a kid? No. Fantasizing about that? No, I... You know, sometimes I wonder myself, how did I get here? But (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I did my PhD at UT Austin Mm -hmm. in ecology, evolution and animal behavior. Mm -hmm. And I studied salamanders there in conservation. But that's where I really got into 
science communication and wanting to promote the idea of communicating science to the public because it is it has a direct link to how scientists do their work. How scientists get funded in the United States is mostly through government grants, big government grants. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if the public didn't know what scientists were doing and how scientists are funded, why should they care if Congress slashes the National Science Foundation budget or the National Institutes of Health budget or anything like that? Yeah, it seems like um, in a practical way, there's probably a lot of things that we use every day that we don't even think about all the decades of work that went into. Right. So, um, so in grad school, I got really interested in science communication and I started a group at UT that was entirely run by graduate students called science under the stars, which is a public outreach lecture series at the Brackenridge field lab. Hmm. And, um, it was all science. It was all graduate student scientists giving talks about their work and, getting the public to go to this field laboratory space where science is done. Then when I was writing my dissertation, you know, I needed graphics to go in it and preferably graphics that didn't really suck. Cause yeah. a lot of times in science articles, the graphics are really dry. And like, yeah, I was also working with a species that of salamander, the Barton Springs salamander that lives most of its time underground and we can't go under there and take pictures of it or like videotape it under the aquifer we just have to imagine what it's doing under there Mm -hmm. so i worked with my aunt victoria who is an illustrator who really inspired me when i was a kid Mm. she would draw stuff for us all the time when we were kids my siblings and i it was so fun who is this again my aunt victoria your aunt victoria yeah so i immediately thought of her i sent her some sketches and said i need some figures that some watercolor figures that show the salamanders and what I think they're doing underground, Mm -hmm. my theories anyway. Yeah. And she sent back these beautiful paintings that I included in my dissertation as a way to try to communicate my findings, you know, without being really dry and Yeah, I'm sure yours stood out, (laughs) didn't it, with these beautiful watercolors? Well, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the 10 people who've read my dissertation really appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um. But that really got me interested in the intersection of art and science working with her. And so I finished my dissertation. I was looking for academic jobs, you know, trying to get all my publications out. You know, I applied for probably 50 or 60 academic jobs and Mm. didn't even get an interview. I mean, I was just so frustrated and I was spending a lot of time doing this. and, And I knew it was still something I probably wanted to do eventually. But in the meantime, I started thinking I need to do something positive that's not depressing, like getting all these rejection letters. And, oh, yeah. okay. and so I started writing this blog called Biocreativity, where mm. I wrote about the intersection of art and science. And I interviewed a bunch of ecologists about e- ecologists that also do artwork. Hmm. Um, and so just through that, I kept meeting more and more people who create science-inspired artwork and then i started getting people emailing me like two or three times a day like i want to show in your gallery how do i get my art in your gallery and i'm like i don't have a gallery really i have a blog (laughs) yeah i'm like this is just a blog but i can show your work online you know yeah and eventually i just got enough of those and they were interesting enough to me that i was like well you know uh west austin studio tour is coming up 
and why not have a show of a bunch of these people who I've interviewed? Mm-hmm. And maybe why not start a gallery? So that was one of our first shows. Yeah. So you started small with some... Started really small. Yeah, I started actually with two shows in First Presbyterian Church, uh, which has a, a neat little gallery inside of it called the South Corridor Gallery, which mm. a lot of people don't know about at all, but you can go there and see whatever show they have right now. Oh, wow. So I did a solo show by Emily Bryant, uh, who makes collage art out of uh, invasive plants. So she has dual degrees in art and environmental science, I believe, Mm -hmm. and sustainability. She has like this cool trio of degrees, I think from Bowdoin College. And she, so she goes to parks and, and removes invasive species of plants uh, and then presses and dries the leaves and then uses that as collage material to depict invasive species hmm. of insects and birds and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they're really beautiful. A lot of people see them and they're like, isn't that like the guy who did the very hungry caterpillar art? Because, uh, uh, okay. you know, yeah. Eric Carl uses paper collage in lots of pretty colors to yeah. make insects. And of course, she's not using paper, but she's using a similar collage. Yeah. So I think a lot of people think of his work when they see her work. Mm-hmm. And then I also had a show in First Presbyterian Church of Inked Animal, which are two fish biologists. At the time, both of them were at UT up in Le Bay and Adam Cohen, mm-hmm. who do Giotaku style printing, which is literally like painting ink on a fish and then pressing it on paper to make a relief print from the from the animal. But they kind of expanded it from fish to like mammals and birds and reptiles and amphibians and yeah i remember actually coming yeah, to a demo here to their demo here was really ago. really cool mm-hmm. so yeah that, that was my second show and then um time just went by and i still hadn't scored an academic interview so mm. i was just like well this is fun <laughs> and it's <laughs> yeah. not depressing so yeah maybe i'll just keep doing it for now and then later come back to you know later come back to academics if I feel like it. That's kind of how the gallery started in this just kind of happenstance way. Yeah, I could, I could totally see that path, <laughs> Yeah, how it played out. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering if we go back even further, like to childhood, are there any stories or moments that you can think of that kind of pushed you into art or science or both? Yeah, um, a couple of things. My, a lot of women in my family were artists. Um, my dad's mother is a ceramic artist and I think I have pictures of me doing ceramics with her, like when I was in diapers or something like really little, she was having me do ceramics. Mm. And, um, later when I got uh, my art degree as part of my college degree, I did mostly ceramics at that point because of her, she was a huge inspiration. Um, and then my aunt Victoria, who I mentioned, like mm-hmm. whenever she would babysit me and my siblings, she, we would just have her draw for us the whole time. She's an amazing illustrator. Mm-hmm. We're like draw a frog, draw a horse, draw me, <laughs> draw, you know, draw That's the family fun. cat, draw Like she would just, and she'd just draw it perfectly. Um, and so that was always really fun. I always yeah. wanted, I always wish I could be a better illustrator yeah, like her. <laughs> Um, she's so phenomenal. My mom's an artist. She studied printmaking and collage. I learned collage from her. And so now I do a lot of collage. Mm. Um, and then my, my mom's mother 
was really into arts and culture. So I grew up in Fort Worth where she would take us, my, my siblings and I and my cousins, to theater shows and art museums and uh, the ballet and any kind of cultural, artistic activity going on in Fort Worth. She would take us. Wow, I mean, she was wonderful. so generous in that way. She mm. really wanted all of us to experience the arts. Mm-hmm. You know, also growing up in Texas, in Fort Worth, where it gets super freaking hot in the summer. Yeah. I just kind of spent my time in art museums during the summer to get out of the heat. And and also at the Fort Worth Zoo, which is really awesome. It's different now from when I was a kid, but they have a really awesome one now, but they used to have a separate aquarium and herpetarium, which were both air conditioned and Mm -hmm. contained many natural wonders. And I just, I could spend days and days just looking at them and drawing them. I think one summer, one of my high school friends and I, went on a mission to draw every single fish in the aquarium. Oh, that's neat. And we spent all summer doing it. It was really fun. Um, I'm so jealous. <laughs> but I also, the Fort Worth Museum of Natural History, or Science and History, used to have this program, I think they still have it, called Museum School. It's mm. called Museum School, and it's preschool in the museum. And we would have biologists come talk to us, and we would get to go, you know, they had dinosaur fossils, we could go see the fossils, and... They would bring live animals from their natural history collections. So I think that's how I kind of got into biology and natural history, too, like as a preschooler. Hmm. Like, I remember one of the teachers bringing this huge iguana from the Fort Worth Zoo that, you know, it must have been longer than I was because I was probably only three or four. Mm -hmm. And they were like, who wants to hold it? And I was like, me, I want to hold it. I want to hold it. And they put this huge iguana in my lap and the whole class was like, ah, running away. Like the other kids were scared. And I was just like, I love you, iguana. I was like hugging it. (laughs) So yeah, I think just biology and art were just always for me. Mm. Like I can't remember a time when I didn't want to play outside or I didn't want to make some art. Or know what something was or... Yeah, right. In nature. So I think those have just kind of stuck with me as I grew up. And even in grad school, you know, I had to kind of put a lot of that aside because in grad school is so intense and Mm. everyone expects you to be doing science 24 hours a day. And when I finished grad school, I just kind of had this like creative hunger that I didn't get to really cultivate while I was in graduate school. Did you see that creative hunger in your peers at all? Or do they just not have, they just don't even entertain that side of themselves? No, I think a lot of my fellow grad students at UT had the same, a lot of us were really interdisciplinary, which I liked about my cohort at UT. Mm -hmm. Finding some kind of reward within our department was not always possible, which is why a lot of us started that science under the stars thing. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the graduate students in my time of being there also created this like seminar yearly seminar where they all shared research just the graduate students and they had an art show along with it and that was really cool i had a lot of really cool creative colleagues in graduate school yeah yeah and i think all of us wish that communication was more highly valued right it's just not in the currency of academia right now learning how to communicate what you're discovering yeah, or figuring learning out learning and also valuing that hmm. as part of the uh, currency of promotion and merit review mm-hmm. and stuff like that so a lot of us have gone on to jobs that do incorporate that which i like 
about us. So in college, you studied, during this time you're talking about, you were studying what? Well, um, in graduate school, I was studying ecology. Uh, In undergrad, I studied biology, art, and environmental studies. I mainly studied field biology, natural history, and ecology, and then combined that with a degree in studio art and environmental studies, Hmm. which I like doing a lot. I went to Austin College, which is a really small liberal arts college um, on the Texas-Oklahoma border, kind of north of Dallas. Oh, okay. Never heard of it. Yeah. Someone's here. Yes. (laughs) Hi, guys. Welcome to the gallery. Yeah, we're here in the gallery. We are. There you go. But yeah, it was... It's funny now that I think back on it, but I had people who... I had professors who thought, can't you just do art kind of as a hobby? And I had uh, other professors who were like, you should be an art major. Can't you just, you know, do biology as a hobby? And I was like, no, damn it. I want to do both. Yeah. (laughs) Why do you think they were trying to push you towards that? I don't know. I don't know. I wonder... I kind of want to ask them now. Yeah. Is it that they thought those two disciplines wouldn't really be marketable together? Is it that they thought you were wasting your time? Thought I was wasting my time. Like, did they really think that should only be a hobby? Did they? I don't know. I want to ask them now that you asked me that. Yeah. Okay. I wonder what they'd say. So you said once you, when you graduated, then you had to fulfill this need for art. What did you do? Yeah, when I got out of graduate school, specifically yeah. at UT. Um, well, I started that blog, uh, Biocreativity oh, right. Blog, and I just started making a lot of work for myself. I started this collage portrait series of natural historians, both famous and not famous, not mm. so famous natural historians. I started it at the Texas Memorial Museum at UT, which is their natural history museum. They have like a Darwin Day celebration every year, which celebrates Darwin, Charles Darwin's birthday. Mm. And they asked me then as writer of my blog, you know, do I want to have a presence there and tell people about my blog, but also do some kind of art activity. So I created this huge portrait of Darwin that was all collages from like um, National Geographic magazines. Mm -hmm. So all the colors and images came from that. Mm. And I kind of directed it and helped visitors different colors where they're supposed to go on the portrait and then you know of course it wasn't finished by the end of the day so I took it home and I finished it and um oh I see it was a it was something you started but it was like supposed to be a collaborative thing yeah it was a collaborative thing for the Darwin day and um it was really big it's like five by four feet or something Mm -hmm. and so I went home and finished it and then uh, the museum asked if they could display it. So it's still down. If you visit the museum, it's like downstairs in the paleo collections where all the dinosaur bones are. I had no idea what that was there. Yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. It's a fun place to draw also. Oh, wow. Yeah, you should go visit it. And what is it again? Where the is Texas it? The Texas Memorial Museum. It's okay. on the UT campus on um, San Jacinto, near Dean Keaton and San Jacinto. Okay. Mm-hmm. Really close to the Fine Arts Building, actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I decided to make that like a yearly thing, though not long after that, the College of Natural Sciences removed the funding for that museum, and they didn't have the Darwin Day celebration anymore. So I didn't do it at the museum anymore, but I just kept doing it. And so mm-hmm. now I have a series of seven or eight scientists. And of course, they started with Darwin, and I do one every year for Darwin's birthday. And I've done Jane Goodall. 
And that was really cool because I got to meet her at Southwestern University when I worked there. She gave mm. a speech there and I was able to finagle the portrait to be there at her <laughs> book signing and um, show it to her. Very nice. She signed it, which was really cool. That one's in the Memorial Museum too. And then I've done one of Sylvia Earle and um, I've done one of Charles Henry Turner, who was an African-American entomologist who was the first African-American to get a doctorate from the University of Chicago. Um, but there's so many scientists uh, whose stories are really hardly known at all, and I wanted to make them more well-known by making their portraits. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess since you mentioned scientists, maybe you could tell me about some of your favorite scientists. That's a great question. Well, I mean... You can't get away as a biologist without saying Charles Darwin is one of them. He's mm-hmm. definitely one of them. Um, but, you know, think of him as a character who didn't want to be a businessman. He didn't want to be a doctor. He he wanted to go on an adventure. And damn, he picked a good one. Yeah. You know, he traveled around the world. He got terrible tropical diseases. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, went on like the ultimate biology quest and yeah, like of discovery of discovery yeah. and his observations really have influenced all of modern biology in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, looking at how, I mean, people think of him first and foremost as a biologist and he does know a lot about biology, but also geology, you know, looking at how layers of earth come together and how they erode and how you could extrapolate the age of different formations based on how much they've eroded. Hmm. Um, But he also, if you ever take a look at his notebooks, um, he was a field sketcher. Mm -hmm. He wasn't really trained in it, but he used sketching and, um, and art to describe species, right. That he Mm -hmm. collected, but also to describe landscapes and scientific concepts. So there's a lot of, uh, I think, interesting artwork in his work yeah, as well. I, I, say, sen- I tend to be really drawn to scientists who um, were very multidimensional. Another one would probably be Ernst Haeckel, who was a biologist who was studying in Vienna around the late 1900s, around the same time that Klimt would have been there, mm-hmm. uh, showing his art in salons. And... Um, he studied microscopic life forms. His parents wanted him, or his dad particularly, wanted him to be a physician. So he was studying at the University of Vienna to be a physician. But he just really didn't like it that much. He didn't mm-hmm. want to do it. And there's a really great book of his letters writing back to his parents about his defiance at really not wanting to do this. Can yeah. I do this instead? But it was around the first time that microscopy was being taught in universities anywhere Mm -hmm. Um, and so he started studying with this microbiologist studying life under the microscope Mm -hmm. and he ended up um, having this kind of lifelong long struggle between wanting to be a biologist and wanting to be an artist like at one point he almost quit biology because he wanted to be an artist Mm. you know he quit studying medicine because he wanted to study with this uh, microscopist and learn how to use microscopes and and he ended up writing this beautiful series of books called um, Art Forms from the Ocean and Art Forms in Nature 
Mm. If you Googled that, you would see these images and they'd yeah. probably be very recognizable to you if you're listening. And he ended up becoming like one of the greatest natural historians ever. Wow. And I've never um, heard and his, his drawings and then the, the etchings and prints that were made from those drawings. I mean, he described tens or hundreds of thousands of microscopic life forms from the ocean that we never knew about before. And they're gorgeous books. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's so funny. I've never thought of scientists as being artists also. And it, I'm starting to see how there probably a lot of them are. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, a lot of them are. Or they approach their subjects in really similar ways, right? Through description and through mm-hmm. study. Um, they're both trying to say something about the natural world through description. Artists tend to be more visual in that description, and scientists tend to be more verbal and mathematical in that description. But the ones that I think would be my favorites did both. And they're the most famous. Yeah. (laughs) Makes me think of, maybe you know who this is, there's a woman who was, I guess she was a photographer, but she did a bunch of uh, cyanotype prints of plants. Yeah. Anna Atkins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now those are really, really really well known. Yeah, Yeah. She published the first book of cyanotypes ever yeah um which is pretty cool and they're beautiful they're really beautiful and then more contemporary artists i love i love angie lewin she's a printmaker from the uk who prints botanicals but botanicals on a really tiny scale like if you were on the edge of a cliff and there was a tiny little piece of moss with little flowers and you crawled down and got really close to it and maybe got out a magnifying glass like she's depicting these little mm. communities of plants at these tiny scales um and they're kind of mid-century inspired a little bit modern inspired in style i really like her work mm-hmm. she has a beautiful book called plants and places that i love mm. um a local artist margie crisp i really love her work she wrote like this beautiful book river of contrast about the colorado river i think now she's working on a different one for a different river but hmm. you know it's all of her hand colored black prints of landscapes as she basically canoed from the beginning of the colorado river all the way down and it's accompanied by her writing the story of all the people and wildlife she encountered along the whole way down it's yeah. beautiful I actually have a print of hers from the Sarah oh, Project. Oh, wonderful. Cool. Yeah. yeah. But I love that concept, right? It's it's some narrative. It's natural history. It's cultural history all together. Mm-hmm. I really like that. What about some other scientists who also kind of are on, that, on the uh, cusp of that art and science? Ooh, good question. What you like? I mean, I think if we go back even further, Da Vinci is an obvious choice. Mm-hmm. I recently saw an exhibit of, I think at the Texas Museum of Science and Technology, actually, where this exhibit company recreated a bunch of his sketches, like his inventions that were never made when he was mm-hmm. alive, but they they made them based on his drawings. So you mm-hmm. can see his, or reproductions of his drawings, and then the actual machine that they built to scale based mm-hmm. on his drawings. I think that he's a classic example. Yeah. Um, it makes me think of there are a lot of famous scientists throughout the centuries that I I think now you know a page out of their notebook would be someone would frame it and put it on their oh, wall. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Galileo's you know moon yeah. phase drawings those are pretty famous. You can buy prints of those in a lot of different places too. 
I guess some more contemporaries. Um, a woman whose work I show here quite a bit is her name is Ellie Willoughby, and she's a marine geophysicist. Mm. But she's also an amazing line of cut printmaker. So she does a lot of portraits of scientists and tells these beautiful stories about them, particularly uh, women scientists. But also as a marine geophysicist, she's done you know several works about life forms in the ocean and she has a really imaginative series too of i can't remember exactly what she calls it it's called something about unnatural history i think but these mm-hmm. organisms that are like chimeras are kind of like mythical animals uh, that she's made up um mm-hmm. based on natural history characteristics of like two or more animals together yeah yeah i really like her work a lot mm-hmm. and i've learned like through her work, I've learned the stories of so many scientists that I didn't know the stories of before. So that's something I really appreciate about her work. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me wonder how well women are represented in the sciences. Well, it depends on what level you look at. I, I think that at the graduate school level, it's about 50, 50 male and female, maybe a little bit more female. But once you get to the next level, like the tenured level faculty, there's a lot fewer females than males. That's something I remember coming up a lot in graduate school, talking with other graduate students and faculty and reading stuff like from Chronicle of Higher Education, where are all these women getting PhDs going? Yeah. If they're not going into tenure track jobs, I still don't know if we have an answer to that question. (laughs) But um, mm-hmm. but there are so many female scientists out there whose stories are just really not very well known. And so that's one thing I like about Ellie's work a lot is that she makes their stories known. Yeah. Um, and we had a wonderful show here that was guest curated by my friend Maya Weinstock. Um, she works at MIT. She's a science communicator for them. Um, and she wrote this article that came out in Scientific American a few years ago on women in science. I think it was something about portraits of women in science. So Mm -hmm. she, she contacted a bunch of different artists that had made portraits or artwork about uh, relatively less known women in science. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this beautiful article about it. And one of the pieces she included was my Jane Goodall portrait. And we were just talking one day and I was like, you know, what if, what if we made this an actual exhibit based on your article? Like, Mm -hmm. would you, would you be willing to guest curate a show and have it here? And we did, and it was a great show. It was called Go Ahead and Do It after the Grace Hopper quote. She's a computer scientist who's famous for saying, if you have a good idea, you should just go ahead and do it. It's uh, easier mm. to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission. Yeah. <laughs> so we named the show after her. She's the one that quote. came up with that yeah. quote? Yeah, Rear Admiral wow. Grace Hopper, yes. She wrote one of the first computer languages. Tell me some of those stories, if you can remember the ones that you've learned about these scientists, that the ones that were exhibited here. Well, if anything sticks out. Yeah, well, a couple that are really dear to me, I made into portraits. When I was collaborating with Maya on that show, I wanted to do some more collage portraits, but not of natural historians. But I also wanted to increase the diversity of scientists I was showing. Mm-hmm. Um, And one, her name is Mary Golda Ross. She was an aerospace engineer in the 1940s, but she was the first woman and the first Cherokee hired by Lockheed, I think in 1942. And she did so much work on like 
orbital paths and calculations to get the Mariner probes to Venus and Mars and to get us to the moon. She did a lot of those orbital calculations. Uh, But one of her first jobs was trying to figure out how to get these rockets, these submarine rockets, which usually would be fired from submarines in the water at each other uh, into rockets that could be fired out of the water into the air. So no one had ever done that before. And she had to figure out the engineering and the mathematics to figure out how these rockets would move through water and then through air to hit a target. So that's what first got her started. Mm -hmm. And she worked for Lockheed or variations of Lockheed until she retired. And she was really uh, instrumental in trying to recruit other Native American young women and men into science and engineering. Mm. Yeah. And she ended up giving a huge donation to the Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. when it was built. Mm -hmm. So she's really inspiring because my grandfather was an aerospace engineer around the same time, also at Lockheed. So I imagine that maybe they even met each other at one point. And I don't know. (laughs) That would just be so cool. I wish I could ask him. The other one I did uh, was of a transgender scientist. Her name is Joan Roughgarden. Mm-hmm. She's a, an evolutionary ecologist. So I've actually seen her speak at several conferences when I was a graduate student, like at the Ecological Society of America. She studies gender roles in the animal kingdom. And she wrote this beautiful book called Evolution's Rainbow, which discusses all of the different uh, sex and gender roles in the animal kingdom because a lot of times you know we think of gender roles as being like strong dominant male weak submissive female and yeah. she was like there's so many examples in the animal world where that's not the case at all yeah um and so this book is just a gorgeous portrait of animal behavior and all of the different other ways that animals do gender and sexuality mm-hmm. and so she transitioned from male to female I think in the late 80s or early 90s. So she's a real pioneer in her field. Now she's, I think, working as a professor at um, the University of Hawaii Mm -hmm. at Manoa. She's a really great speaker. So I've heard her speak a couple of times at these meetings. And I wanted a a transgender scientist to be represented in that show as well. And then if you think of Ellie's work, Ellie Willoughby's work, she one of my favorite portraits she made is of Mary Anning, who is um, an English paleontologist. You know that limerick, like, she sells seashells down by the seashore. That's about Mary Anning. She was really into paleontology, and she worked on the White Cliffs of Dover, like, chipping away at it and getting fossils from it. But no university would hire her because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she ended up specializing as kind of a privateer, collecting big fossils, ammonite fossils, but also like some of the first ichthyosaur fossils Mm -hmm. um, from these cliffs and selling them to private collectors or selling them to museum collections. But yeah, during her lifetime, she was never really, she was pretty famous, but she never could work for a university because no one wanted to hire a woman paleontologist. Mm. Yeah. But there's a portrait of her back there carrying a little basket that she'd put her fossils in to sell and like these huge ichthyosaur fossils in the cliffs behind her i think is just a really beautiful monument to her really okay well then tell me about science art different people have different definitions of what this is um and my definition used to be a lot more broad but it's a lot more narrow now Mm -hmm. it's it's often shortened as just sci art so Mm. if you're ever on social media and you look for that hashtag sci art you'll find A lot of different science-inspired art. But yeah, in essence, it's art that's inspired by one of the natural sciences. And in my definition, I include 
things like any of the natural sciences, physics, mathematics, natural history. You know, I come from a biology background. So when I first started the gallery, I just was showing a lot more biology inspired art than math art, but there's certainly that out there too. Mm-hmm. You know, some people consider it kind of a, a little movement of its own that's starting to get larger and larger, but it, it includes a lot of different things. It could include, you know, science illustrations in a science textbook, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine a biology textbook with no illustrations. I think we used to have those. They were real boring. Yeah, that'd be tough to get through. (laughs) So there are people who go to specialist programs for science illustration, and usually Mm. they get hired by publishers to make figures and drawings for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. There are some people who think science art can be, you know, beautiful images from a microscope slide or something like that. And that's something I used to have in my definition, but I don't anymore. Mm-hmm. I can tell you why in a few minutes. But, yeah. um, but for me, it's really, you know, we were talking about how scientists and artists approach the world through description and exploration. And mm-hmm. so I really consider science art anything that combines natural science with art with that kind of process in mind. So I actually, I've changed my definition over the years to not include things like a beautiful microscope slide because the intention is not necessarily there. It may be beautiful and aesthetically pleasing to the eye to see. Would that also then exclude like a photo of a far off galaxy or something like that? Yeah, like in a telescope. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does for me in terms of what yeah. I would show in my gallery. Because it's not made with an artist's intent to describe and... It's just super literal documentation. It's just, yeah, it's documentation. It's beautiful documentation. Yeah. For sure. Amazing things. Amazing things. You probably couldn't, would never see otherwise. Right. But it wasn't intended to be a work of art. Mm. And the person who made it or the instrument who took that, that took that image... You know, they may or may not have given thought to composition or to scale or to, you know, on both microscopes and telescopes, we have a wide variety of filters we can apply to those to manipulate the way the image looks like, depending on what the scientist is looking for, right? We can look at it in infrared or invisible light spectrum or in the far red spectrum, and that can create a lot of different images. But to me, the more I've shown science art, the less that type of image interests me as a curator. Yeah. Even though they're very beautiful and I like to look at them in science museums. (laughs) Because there's probably really a need to expose all this other stuff that is more in line with your definition. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, for me, the artists, for me, I really also want to see the artist's hand in the work. Mm Mm-hmm. I think Troy talked about that a little bit a little bit in his interview, but I want to see evidence of the artist's thought process and the artist's hand and mm-hmm. an image that someone took in a lab that just happens to have turned out to be beautiful lacks that for me. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing I've struggled with a lot is who does and who is allowed to call themselves an artist. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who I know who went to art school who are trained in the arts and may like science or may even have a microscope and look at things under the microscope from time to time, but they would never call themselves a scientist. And so, because that's not their profession, Mm -hmm. 
Um, but there are lots of people in the sciences who might make an image here or there or take a pretty picture in a microscope or on a telescope and say, well, I'm an artist too. When they've, they have collected a beautiful image, but it's not their profession. It's, and it's not for me about what their training is necessarily, but it is about that intent and where the artist's hand is and, and, all yeah, the meaning intention. that goes behind composition and all the decisions that go into making an image, all of those decisions are kind of taken away if you're just saying, you know, this microscope slide turned out pretty great yeah. and it's gorgeous. These are all my opinions, by the yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of people listening who will probably disagree with me. Yeah. but I had no idea there was anything... Anything called science art. So that's really yeah. interesting to hear about that. Yeah, it was kind of new to me when I started writing about biology and art on my blog. I came across this term, mm. sci art or science art. And so, yeah, there's kind of a contingent, especially online and social media, sharing sci art. So mm. if you want to see a lot of examples of what I'm talking about, just look for that hashtag on yeah. Instagram or Twitter. And you'll find a lot of examples. Okay. Yeah. So maybe tell me about, I don't know, what it's like to run a gallery, for one thing, trying to sell art. I mean, that's something I've talked with quite a few other people about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's that like? What's that been like? It's well, a struggle, right? It's a struggle. <laughs> oh, yes, it is a struggle. Um, so when I started the gallery, I struggled a lot with whether to form as a nonprofit or not. Mm-hmm. And it's still always something I've kind of wanted to do, but... I ended up forming uh, as an LLC, mm-hmm. um, as just a single owner, small business, because that was pretty easy to set up. Yeah. And I wanted to get started right away. You know, I didn't want to go through years of trying to set up a nonprofit. Yeah. And so I have a lot of respect for people who have done that, because it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I also had this idea that one of the missions of the gallery is not just to show science-inspired work, but that I wanted to help people make a living doing it. People Mm -hmm. who focus on doing this kind of work. Being an artist is a profession and it's something that people should get paid for a fair wage. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe in that very strongly. So that's, that's one thing that has been really hard because I think a lot of other people you've talked to on your podcast have talked about how Austin is kind of a hard place to sell artwork. There are a lot of people here who would drop $200 on dinner, but not on a painting. (laughs) Um, And I've seen that be very frustrating because I really believe in the work these people are making. Yeah. So you created this venue to support these people and you believe in what they're doing and they're passionate about it and it doesn't always come to fruition. Right. Yeah. So I'll have shows where I'm like, you know, God, this stuff is good. This stuff is good. Like, I really want people to appreciate it. And sometimes when things don't sell that I really think should sell and go to a collector, I think, like, where are these people? They've got to see this. Like, I really want people to see this. Um, And have it in their home and look at it every day. Exactly. So if you compare that to a $200 dinner, you know, this is the $200 that keeps giving every day until you die. And then you can give it to someone else. Yeah. You know, you can't do that with dinner. Right. It's not going to last that long. <laughs> no. Yeah. Struggling with that and okay. kind of like probably now that we talk a little bit of anger about okay. injustice of it, you know, <laughs> man, you know, Austin is a place that really values our local chefs, which I think is great. I love that people can 
go yeah. to dinner and support local chefs and pay that much. And it is an experience that one should have at least once in their life. Um, mm-hmm. People should be supporting local agriculture and our and our local chefs. People should be supporting local music, which we do, right? We support our local music scene. And the venues that show them are not all nonprofits either, you know? Yeah. Um, we host fundraisers to pay for health care for local musicians. But we don't do that for artists here. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it should be some kind of public education campaign about this because I've seen so many artists leave here mm. to go somewhere else because no one buys art here. And I think most people I think would that's not a shame. believe that. I don't know. Just I've the seen kind it of so sense, many times. Yeah. The sense you'd have is that, oh, of course, Austin supports its artists. Or Well, I think even an article came out a few months ago, right, about this is the best place to be an artist in the United mm-hmm. States. This is a hard place to be an artist yeah. and make a living at it. And it is a profession. It's a legitimate profession that people should be paid to do. Um, and you're keeping this gallery open partly by ha- also having a job, right? Like yeah. a lot of artists do have jobs. Yeah. yeah. I am now. I didn't for a while. Mm. But I am now. Yeah. And that makes it even harder yeah. because that's a bunch of my attention on something else that I still love doing. I teach at a university, but it's hard to do both. Yeah. Things. And you started this because you wanted to do it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Put everything into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, d- I don't know. You should support local galleries if you're listening to this. You probably already do if you listen to this podcast. But, yeah, you know, we think about going to music shows, right? And... Or a concert. Or a yeah. concert. And you wouldn't just expect to be able to go in for free, right? Yeah. Um, you would probably have to pay a small cover charge or admission fee. And, and you would do that because some, some of it goes to the venue and some of it goes to the band, right? Yeah. How else are they going to have a venue and make music? Yeah. But galleries, especially private galleries that aren't museums like the Blanton, you know, we don't charge admission. You know, people can use us if they want as free entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've struggled with, too. Yeah. I want people to see things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be mad at you if you come in here and you don't buy anything. Because I want people to see this. But I think I'm speaking more to the cultural difference between yeah. how we value music in this city versus how we value art. Yeah. And something I see with art openings a lot is that people will make their list of where people are giving out free alcohol at an art opening and they'll just make their circuit of free entertainment for the night so they can get free booze. Yeah, that is and true. And see some beautiful art. But, you know, we, we wouldn't put up with that in yeah. the music scene, really. But we put up with it in the art scene and I think that's wrong. Yeah. And I'd like to be able to change that, but I'm really not sure how besides talking about it. Well, that's And uh, these step. are obviously my opinions too. Some people would probably really disagree with me. <laughs> oh, I'd be interested to hear their side of it too then. Yeah. Why they think it's different. I mean, yeah, everyone has a, their own experience, but I've been part of those conversations just about maybe the East Austin studio tour. And it's like maybe 99% of the people, it's just kind of something to do on the weekend. It's not, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's wonderful when you come across people and they're like, Oh yeah, I come every year. I have a budget. I'm, buying art you know it's Mm -hmm. very refreshing but i think it's rare more rare yeah i think it's more rare 
And, you know, I wish I knew what the magical equation was. Mm-hmm. You know, I've thought about giving free art collecting workshops, just not so people will buy stuff here at my gallery, but so people just know that this is how you get started and this is how you support artists in your community. Otherwise, yeah. they're going to move away and they do. Yeah. And galleries move away and close and they do. You know, there's there's kind of a, if you watch the opening of new galleries and the closing of galleries, there's a progression of openings and closings. So the public always has somewhere to go for free and appreciate art and get a drink at the opening reception. But yeah. but the identity of those galleries changes because that's not sustainable. I definitely agree that this is something that you know we should all think more about and try to come up with some ways to get people to engage and consider collecting art and supporting artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. To me, I think that's it. I think it's about educating the public about the importance of collecting. Yeah. I don't think it's as much about everyone deciding how much art should be worth. No one's ever going to agree on that. Mm-hmm. But educating the public and cultivating new collectors, because sometimes people think it's just out of their reach when it, it really isn't. I mean, you and I are sitting in an art gallery right now full of $30 pieces of art. Mm-hmm. One reason I like to do this show every year is because like, it's very accessible. Yeah, tell me about this show. Um, well, this is our fifth annual art science trading card show. So a few years ago, I went to the Austin Maker Fair for the first time, like maybe 10 years ago. And there was a table where you could make artist trading cards, which are these two and a half inch by three and a half inch little works of art. Sometimes literally on playing cards, but sometimes on cardstock or whatever. They could be made out of anything. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of fun making some at that. And then I thought when I was gearing up for a fundraiser to get a, a permanent home for Art Science Gallery, I thought, well, what's an art activity that people could do at this fundraiser that might be fun? And I thought of artist trading cards and could we make them inspired by science? Like, could we put that stipulation that, you know, I'll provide all these supplies people could make? art about science. And that's kind of how the idea started for it. And then I think it was the first year I was here at Canopy because um, I moved in east of 2013. And so the very next show, I thought, well, what if I made this international open call where anyone could mail in a trading card? Because, you know, they're really small. Yeah, it's, it's hopefully not asking too much of the person making it to make something you know, very small. It doesn't take a lot of materials costs and yeah. and anyone could mail it in from anywhere on earth because it's just a little card. You could put it in an envelope with a regular stamp. You don't have to ship a package. Yeah. So I put out the call to see, you know, I, I agreed to display anything that came in as long as it was the right size and was about science. Mm-hmm. And I made a public online library online also where people can see scans of all the trading cards in all five shows now Mm -hmm. at first it was you know the idea was could we make it like a fundraiser where people would donate these cards and we would sell them to help support the gallery staying in a space because this was like only our second month in operation yeah um and it was so much fun that first year i think i got like 250 cards in the mail and a lot of people just voluntarily added a couple of bucks into their envelope like we like this idea have a couple of bucks (laughs) like and a card that you can sell i mean people were so generous and people were writing that they had so much fun making them and 
And that's how it started. So that first year we had like 250. This one right now has about, I think, 107. Mm-hmm. But they're all two and a half by three and a half inches. They're framed. Jerry's Artorama sponsored us and gave us these frames for a really good deal. So you could get a framed, beautiful piece of science art that someone who loves the gallery mailed in. Yeah. And um, I think they're perfect for anyone trying to start a collection. Um, yeah, if you want to get started collecting If you want to get started, yeah. And also for those people who say like, I have too much art, I can possibly fit another piece of art in here in my room. Well, uh, these are pretty small. You know, these are pretty small, so you could do that. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Yeah. I think another thing that inspired me about the gallery was that documentary about Herb and Dorothy Vogel. Did you mm. see that? Oh, yeah. About the couple in New York. I think he was... Was he a mail sorter and she was a teacher and they spent her salary on uh, their living expenses and his salary on collecting art. And the two of them just, I mean, these are just two everyday hardworking people in New York City who just went to every art opening and would go to artist studios and pick out things that were not framed. And they just, they just picked out what they liked uh, and filled an entire apartment yeah, it's a lovely, lovely I, story. I really love that story. So, and now I would their love work for everyone is to see it in museums. Yeah, I mean, they donated their whole collection, collection to a museum, and there was so much of it the museum couldn't even keep it all. So they divided it up into these sets of fifty artworks for each of the fifty states. And it was at the Blanton not that long ago. Mm. Yeah, I miss that. I really love that story about collectors because they're not super rich people. Yeah, they were intimidated teacher, by it. A teacher they, and a postal sorter. Yeah. And they just loved art. And bought a, what they you're liked. right, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, they bought what they liked. So what's coming up next? Um, well, I'm really excited to be participating in Print Austin for mm-hmm. the fourth time or fifth time. Um, I've participated in it every year since Kathy and Elvia started it. Mm-hmm. And it's called Solar. So it's all prints about the sun and what's interesting i think about this show is that some artists are approaching it in different ways so some people are using techniques that are assisted by the sun Mm -hmm. so using photosensitive dyes and inks uh, or solar etchings so using some kind of photosensitive material or cyanotypes like anna atkins would have used Mm -hmm. Uh, but some are approaching it using the sun our sun or other suns in the universe as Mm -hmm subject matter for their prints so that opens january 19th and uh, i think several other galleries here at canopy are going to be doing shows for print austin and how long will that be up um that will be up until the end of february Mm -hmm. i'm really excited about it yeah um and you know sometimes we have classes here at the gallery and my mom actually teaches one that I really like called solar printmaking. So she's going to be teaching an afternoon solar printmaking workshop using these really cool solar fast dyes that yeah. expose in the sun. So where would someone find out more about the gallery and the classes and all that? Uh, well, that would be on our website, which is <laughs> artsciencegallery.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when are you open? Um, We're open uh, until Christmas Eve. Right now, we're open Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, 12 to 6, and on the weekends, Saturday and Sunday from 12 to 4. 
Um, then we're taking a little break, and Print Austin opens on January 19th. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much. I really, wow, I really learned a lot, and I feel very optimistic hearing about kind of the state of science art and just hearing about some of the scientists and who are also artists and it was just really inspiring to hear about them so thanks for that you're welcome thanks for having me on your podcast all right well thanks thanks for listening If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider sharing it with anyone that you think might get value from it. And also, consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes at the bottom of the webpage for each episode, or also by tapping the Square Austin Art Talk logo graphic on your phone within the podcast app to discover more info related to my guests, their work, and many of the things we mention and talk about in the episode. Please don't hesitate to share any feedback so that I can continue to improve what I'm creating and make it more useful to you. Thanks again for your time and take care.